0: Amen. Please be seated and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. I do have the passage for you on the insert. I have the whole passage. This is a sermon preached by Peter, arguably the greatest sermon in the New Testament besides those preached by our Lord. But how could you rank any of God's words? So we're careful to do so. But it is a powerful foundational sermon at the beginning of the expansion of God's kingdom. The Holy Spirit has come Jesus ascended into heaven, sent the Spirit, Pentecost has come, and people are given the ability to speak languages that are not their original tongue so that other people uh, would understand them who are from other countries, and there was a unity of the Spirit filled, uh, filling those people. Uh, 120 of them gathered in that initial gathering. Many more were onlookers watching what was happening. Uh, we know this at the end of this sermon, uh, some 3,000 people profess faith in Christ, Um, But this is an episode that occurs right at the fountainhead of the church's explosive expansion. And it's a sermon uh, to be remembered. It's a model uh, for all sermons, uh, a Christ-centered preaching par excellence by Peter, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, obviously. And so I will read this uh, sermon in its entirety, verse 14 of Acts 2 to verse 36, We'll pick up next week with the aftermath of the sermon, the response of the people. But for now, here as I read God's holy word, um, this sermon preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's bow together and ask for God's blessing to be upon uh, the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by the work of your Holy Spirit, please give us understanding of your word. I pray that Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, uh, that it would enliven dead hearts and encourage regenerate ones afresh. I pray that we would be inspired by the simple power of the message of the gospel of Christ. I pray that we would be renewed in our confidence about the unified message of your word, the message of Christ. I pray this through Christ, to whom the Bible points. Amen. We have before us a sermon preached by an apostle. Now, a preacher must be careful when preaching a sermon on a sermon, especially one in the Bible. Uh, This is arguably the greatest sermon in Scripture not preached by Jesus himself if you want to rank such a thing. So my approach this morning will be to walk through Peter's sermon, his message at Pentecost, and then highlight the points of his message. Um, That the message of this sermon would be the message of the text itself. That's what any sermon should strive after. Uh, That's what expository preaching is. It's not just going through the Bible in order. It's the message of the sermon should be the message of the text. Uh, What the text says is what the sermon should say. That's where the power of God's word lies. Now, this is not just for preachers, though, a model. It is a model for preachers, but it's for every Christian to lay hold of what Peter says and what he displays. James Boyce puts it this way. It is a sermon every preacher should study. Yet more than that, it is a sermon all Christians should study because although in a formal sense most Christians do not preach sermons, all nevertheless have many opportunities, they must have them, to speak about Jesus Christ. So the principles that govern the formation of a great sermon must govern the informal witness of the people of God in other circumstances. This sermon was centered on the Bible centered on Christ, and was fearless and reasonable. We have before us a model Christ-centered sermon. Let's walk through the passage together, starting at verse 14, where we have Peter, good old Peter, the stumbling disciple, now speaking with apostolic authority. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. What a difference, this demeanor or this this tone that Peter has now as he speaks. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine in the morning. So Peter stands with authority that we have not seen from him before. It's an authority, yes, because of his special commission as an apostle, no doubt but it's also because he's basing what he will say on the word. It's based on the Bible. So he has a certain forwardness, a confidence, an authority because it's biblical. That's the basis for his speaking with authority. It's based on scripture. And this is Peter now. This is the Peter who lied about knowing Jesus when a servant girl recognized him the night of Jesus' arrest. It's the same bumbling and stumbling Peter that we relate with so well. Uh, We saw him speak before he thought so many times. Um, The same Peter whose face slipped on more than one occasion. The same Peter who intemperately sliced off a guard's ear. Um, Kent Hughes captures it this way. He was always the first in everything. First on the water, first with his mouth, and first with the sword. And now here's that Peter, standing with apostolic authority, standing with the 11, verse 14, lifted up his voice and addressed them. There's 120 people there immediately and more listening on. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Everybody needs to hear this message, Peter says with authority. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. This is a person now who's not speaking any longer as a doubting, stuttering disciple. This is a post Resurrection prophet of God speaking with command. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Now, I am not a po- an apostle. There aren't apostles, but we have the apostolic faith in the word of God. And so preaching today should be with command, it should be with authority, it should be because it's based on scripture. If it's not based on scripture, we shouldn't say anything. So if we are saying what Scripture says, we should say it with confidence, and it should go forth that way. Preaching is not a conversation. It is not a two-way. It is the Word of God being proclaimed as it is given, and the people of God need this. And That's what preaching is, and preaching will always have at its subject Christ. Now, there may be sections of Scripture that tell us how we're supposed to live, but it's still rooted in Christ. We can't live that way except for in Christ. So all Scripture preached is Christ-centered. It's Bible-based, and it comes with command and authority. And that's what we have demonstrated by Peter when he speaks. He speaks this way because it is with apostolic authority. It is Scripture, and that's what we still have in the church today, is God's Word and His Spirit, and we should preach it with that kind of confidence. In particular, you'll see how he roots the message in Scripture. Look at verse 16 a great model for us as we we come to understand truths that are depicted in one part of Scripture, we can check it against others and come to a a, a thoroughgoing understanding of what is being said or declared. What happened on the day of Pentecost when these people were speaking in other languages was actually forecasted in the book of Joel, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel chapter 2 in particular. And now this prophecy that wasn't fully known at the time of Joel, the time of Joel, Israel is under great condemnation. And they were looking ahead. The prophet was looking ahead to the time of the coming of Messiah. And really a complex of time is captured here. Verse 17 In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I pour out my spirit on all flesh. Last days doesn't always mean the last few days before the end comes. In the last epoch, in the last time. And when Christ comes, his work his work on the cross, is raised again and ascended, now the expansion of the kingdom begins as the last days. We're in those. They were then and they are, we are now. But there is some particular fulfillment that's most likely in view. Clearly what happens at Pentecost, it says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. It will go wider than Israel. The fulfillment of Abraham's covenant will be seen. The nations will come. The spirit will go forth. The kingdom will expand. Verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Now, many scholars, and I tend to line this way. Think this is picturing what happens at the end of the Jewish epoch when in 70 AD the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is leveled. And so this is that final judgment. The Spirit comes, the kingdom expands, God brings this judgment on the temple in what it represents. Some think that's still to come. It's a bookend to the end of, of the age. Whatever the case, for the people hearing this sermon now, they're realizing. This is not a bunch of people drunk at nine in the morning. This is the Spirit come and something big is happening that had been forecasted centuries before. Verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This becomes a very important call in the preaching of the church. It has always been the call of God. Anyone who calls upon God will be saved. And of course, this is with the understanding of who Christ is. There is some depth here, clearly, as it's couched in this overall teaching of who Christ is, what he came to do, where he was. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Next, you see in verse 22, Peter drawing attention uh, to something very historical. This makes the sermon... Become timeless. Now, any Christ centered sermon is timeless, but he's really rooting the message, the heart of the message, in the person of Christ, the real person of Christ. He's not just a myth, not just a metaphor. He's actually Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 22 Men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. So they were eyewitnesses to this historical Jesus. Um, Attested by God, they saw him do his works and his wonders and his signs in their midst. In the last part of verse 22, as you yourselves know. You know this is historical. This is an historic person, Jesus. He did what he did in front of you. You saw it. You witnessed it. Jesus of Nazareth, not to be confused with any other Jesus, these facts that he's offering about Christ is part of his sermon, part of his message, so that they could connect with what they witnessed and know what it meant. You'll notice that they're in the time frame. No, no one stands up and says, wait, what you said about Jesus isn't true. And there's no record in the hundreds of years after Jesus ascended, of anybody trying to argue that Jesus didn't really exist. You know that that kind of teaching, the idea that Jesus didn't really exist, as the Bible depicts, is rather recent. And it's usually a reaction to what the Bible teaches. If we can take out the historical Jesus, then what is said can then be dealt with too. But no serious efforts has been made to say that Jesus didn't really walk the earth when the Bible says he did, or that Jesus did the things he, the Bible says he did. No serious attempt is made at that. And Peter, with his statement about Jesus, roots Christ in history so we know what he did actually happen and then what it means. And by the way, this is still a valid appeal for Christians today. It's not the thing that would necessarily bring a person to Christ. God God can do whatever he wants with his word. But stating the fact of Jesus' life, you can confront a person, is Jesus real or not? Do you believe he existed? Do you believe that the record of what we have in the Gospels is really true about Christ? Yes or no? And what do you do with that? It's a good lead-in to introduce the Gospel of Christ. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Peter confronts the audience with the historicity of Jesus. He healed people. He cast out demons in front of you. He stopped storms in front of you. He raised the dead. He fed people with just morsels. He himself died and was raised, and you've seen it. You know it's true. He proved himself a hundred times over. Next, Peter goes on in his sermon, verse 23, declaring the reason for Christ's finished work. And in so doing, he accents our sinful state and God's sovereign power. There's a lot in this statement that comes next. He makes a statement that we can't deny about our sin And his crucifixion at the same time speaks to God's righteous and sovereign plan. Verse 23: This Jesus, the one I've just told you about and reminded you of, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Two packed verses it says that God planned for Jesus to come and be delivered up to do the work of redemption. Back in Isaiah 53, 700 years before this, it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the plan of God to send Messiah to die for the sins of his people. And then it says in the text, defining this plan, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus being del- de- delivered up for Redemption was part of the plan of God under the foreknowledge of God. Now, when we think of foreknowledge as human beings, we typically think we can foresee something that happens, not that we're making it happen. That's not how it applies to God, though. And the way we know is when the word is used, like we have here, it says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. They're meant to inform each other as concepts about God. We have definite plans, but they're really not that definite because stuff can happen. We can have foreknowledge, which is we were likely to see something happen. We've orchestrated some things that should fall out this way, but it might not. That's because we're people. But when you're talking about God, it always works. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God are used in in a synonymous sense. The same way it's used in Romans 8. That we, that those that God foreknew, he also predestined. Foreknowledge and predestination go together. It's part of God's sovereign plan. That's redemption. Yet, though, notice what it says next. You killed him. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In case anybody was sitting there thinking, well, the Romans did it. That's not the truth. The Jews had him killed by the Romans. He's speaking in this general term to the people at this time. You did this. This is a sinful thing that you did. It's your personal sin that causes death, and then it's your direct sin in that day of leading him to the Romans. That would have convicted any hearer. And it would have caused them to realize, yes, God is sovereign, but I am responsible by my sin, by my action towards Christ that required his death in this sense. Oftentimes when people struggle over this concept of Jesus or God's sovereignty and then man's responsibility, it's best to think of the episode that happened back in the book of Genesis, and it informs this. Back when Joseph was thrown in the pit by his brothers, they intended to kill him. Instead, they decided, hey, we can make some money off this, so we'll sell him to the Midianites we'll never have to deal with him again. And then even more wickedly, they then go tell their, their father that he had been killed by an animal. They lived with this their whole life. The guilt, the rightful guilt of what they did to their brother, no question. Nobody's saying that they were not responsible for their actions. But sometimes the scripture will give us an insight to how God's sovereignty works even in the affairs of men's wickedness. And years go by and they meet up with Joseph again who's now the ruler in Egypt. And they're sure for right reason he's going to kill them. They deserve death. They're guilty. They're responsible for the evil thing they did. But listen to what Joseph says by the Holy Spirit. Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in, for am I in the place of God? As for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me; they meant it, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This just gives us a little bit of the insight. Sometimes Scripture will tell us how God's sovereignty works in things that are difficult to tell on the surface. But whatever the case when we're confronted with something like we have in the book of Acts here, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. The wrong question is, that's not fair. That can't be fair. How could God do that? How could he blame me, but he did it? That's the wrong question. The right question is, how am I guilty in this? I am guilty in this. The right response is, I am. What do I do to be right with God in this light? That's what this brings out in the crowd that hears it the first time and hopefully it brings it out in us as well. And he assures us that though he'd been crucified, though we're responsible for it, God and his plan could not be stopped. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised Jesus. Jesus' finished work includes his life, his obedience, his death, and his resurrection. This finished work was done despite our sinful participation. This work was accomplished because God's sovereign in his power. The thing that defeats all man, death, could not defeat Christ. So what does this mean as he's preaching the sermon, as you're hearing it? I need to be with him. I need to be in union with Christ. I need to be in association with Jesus. Peter is declaring God's plan. He's declaring our guilt, and he's declaring Christ's finished work. This has always been the gospel. But now it's as crystal clear as it could be with the finished work of Christ right in their minds already, having happened not even a month and a half before. Before this, in the Old Testament, was forecasted Jesus' finished work. And they looked to Messiah and the work he would do for salvation. Now it's been finished and we look back upon it and rest. Peter again roots Jesus and his resurrection, which is that final stamp on his finished work. He roots it in Scripture's forecasting. Psalm 16 now. Look at verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, and he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. So this is David in Psalm 16 speaking through the Holy Spirit. Unbeknownst to him, speaking for his greater son who would be Christ, Jesus would be the fulfillment of David's throne. The covenantal promises of God fulfilled through David, finally upon Jesus. Psalm 16 is Jesus speaking of his relationship with the Father that makes his Father safeguard him in the tomb before his resurrection. Verse 26, "...therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope." For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is a forecasting of the experience of Christ. It's telling the audience this is rooted in God's sovereign, providential outworking of his plan to redeem. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. Peter is careful here, though, to do something else. Look at verse 29. He respects the prophets. He's not in any way dissing David. In fact, the Jews loved Abraham, Father Abraham. The Jews loved Moses. But the Jews in the time of the Romans really loved David. Uh, David marked something that they longed for. They wanted a king as powerful with as much military might and prowess and leadership as David had. That's who they want. They want a David to rise up to free them from the Romans. It's David who is our great king. And even the other nations of earth knew their military history and knew the stories of David. Though Israel was a small nation, the kind of conquest they exacted under David was held in legend among the pagan nations even. So David's a point of pride for the Jews. What Peter does is say the point about David you're missing He is a forecast of the greater king who will sit on the throne and exact a greater dominion over a greater king, kingdom. David's greater son, Christ. It's not about David. With no disrespect to the patriarchs, verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. David is not superior to Christ. He's the fulfillment of or he's the predecessor to the fulfillment who is Christ. The legacy of David's powerful reign as king is known the world over, but the greater David is better and more superior in all ways you can imagine. The kingdom that Jesus will bring will not be bound by borders. It will not be defined by one ethnicity. It will not be limited to a part on earth that is just small. It will expand to every tribe, tongue, and nation because the Spirit From the king from heaven will be sent and people will be saved. They will call upon the name of the Lord and they'll be saved. And this will transcend all the kinds of boundaries we set up. And even in places where they oppress those who name the name of Christ, the kingdom won't stop growing because the Spirit's doing this work. It's the greatest kingdom that anyone could ever imagine. And it will have no end. And it will come to a final climactic point in some day. And this David you're thinking is too small. Too small. I could say with confidence, Peter says, the David that you're thinking of died. He's buried. We know where his tomb is. Now, in climactic fashion, in verse 30, Peter shows Jesus to be the fulfillment of God's covenant of grace, who is seated now with God in heaven, carrying out this expansion of the kingdom. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. David knows it. there will be a descendant of the throne, and it's Jesus. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In David's day, there was a lot of death, a lot of dying, a lot of burials, a lot of funerals, a lot of putting people in tombs. But the one who would take the throne eventually would not have this be the case. This Jesus God raised up, verse 32, and of that we are all witnesses. Jesus is different than everybody else, because he defeated death. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This Pentecost is Jesus at the throne, the right hand of God, pouring out his Spirit, fulfilling what scripture said and starting the explosive expansion of the kingdom. They were living the fulfillment of God's plan for kingdom expansion. The Holy Spirit was the agent of the divine Godhead that would make the kingdom grow. And what they were seeing and hearing wasn't a bunch of drunkards at nine in the morning. It was God working to begin his final fulfillment of his covenant promises. And lest anyone be confused about Christ's present work, what he's doing right now, Peter tells them, once again, verse 34 and verse 35, Christ is declared... Is, the building, is building his kingdom for the point of Pentecost. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, you know what they're saying, Jesus is the one who ascended. But David said, speaking for Christ, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most cited psalm in the Bible 25 plus times. This is God the Father saying to God the Son, after his finished work and resurrection, sit at my right hand. This is a demonstration of Jesus being equal with the Father. It wasn't David who ascended to heaven, it was Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand. And the right hand of the king meant that he was equal in authority. The right hand of the king is a place of vulnerability for the king. The king has his scepter which makes orders in his right hand or his sword in his right hand which can make attack. And in both cases, if you're seated at his right hand, you could put your hands on both of them and stop them symbolically. So Jesus, equal with the Father, rules at his right hand and sends the Spirit so that, verse 35, until I make your enemies your footstool, So the work of the Spirit now is to subdue Christ's enemies to himself. And guess who that is? Or was? Us. Christ subdued you to himself. You didn't do God a favor and say, I'll accept you. He took your warring self who was fighting against him and subdued you to Christ. And that's the work that God's doing from his throne With his son at his right hand and his spirit subduing God's enemies to himself. Until all have been brought that will be brought and he comes again in final glory. What a picture. What a sermon Peter's sermon is. This is God's plan for redemption in a nutshell given. Jesus building his kingdom by winning people to Christ through the Holy Spirit and power witness of his people. What a sermon Peter preaches. It refers to Christ's ministry, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his present ministry. And if you haven't noticed by now, he really did it in like five minutes. Don't get any ideas about what that means, but five minutes is about all this sermon took. Now, he said more. We know later, all day he spent talking with people about the things he said. And this might just be a summary uh, that Luke gives us. But it's succinct and it carries it all, and it's proclaimed, and God brings people to Himself because Christ is preached. After all sorts of incredible and rich, historic, redemptive complexity. And there's lots of complexities here. You could study until Jesus comes back all the intricacies of Scripture and how God's providence works. But Peter concludes his message with a very simple gospel declaration for the ages. It's timeless and it still works because God ordains it. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. It's a simple confrontation. What will you do with Jesus? God has said he is Lord and Christ. Lord means he's the sovereign one. He's the king. He has authority. You do what he says. God has made him Lord. God has also made him Christ. Christ means the anointed one. It's it's Greek for Messiah, the Savior, the, the one who redeems. He's made him the Lord and the Christ. And you crucified him. What do you do? We should say, Oh, Lord, I have. What do I do? And he says, come to me. Rest and call out and be saved. Rest in Christ. Rest in the one who is the Messiah. That's what you do. That's the call of the gospel. That's the call to us. And if you're an old Christian, you still love this message. If you're someone who's wondering and you're tweaked in your spirit and saying that, then God may be giving you life and you can lay hold of Christ. It's the only way you can If you're neither of these, you might just be mad at this or think it's just it's all hogwash to you. But when this message goes, God saves people. God encourages people. And that's what we have once again before us. I love the response. We're going to get to this next week, Lord willing, but verse 37, after this sermon's been preached. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, and this is the right thing to say, and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Ken Hughes summarizes a sermon saying it's simple, it's scriptural, it's Christ-centered, it's convicting, it's practical, it's attention-getting and relevant. Peter's preaching here, it's full of Jesus, it's full of the Bible, it's full of the Holy Spirit. Oh, oh for preaching to return to this in our day. Um, so much of the preaching that happens today is awful. It's just, it's just self-help junk it's sociological or psychological. It doesn't get to the, the root issue of the gospel with authority. It is more of a conversation than a proclamation. James Boyce said this well several years ago. The problem with our preaching today is that it's so man-centered. Sometimes it is centered on the preacher. Uh, the minister will tell cute stories, often about himself or his children. Sometimes the preaching is centered on the hearers. It speaks to felt needs. Now, he, he notes, there is a certain sense in which that may be quite proper, of course, It's possible to reach people by speaking to their felt needs. It's starting there. But much preaching never gets beyond that. It's psychological or sociological in emphasis. It looks to the polls and asks, what produces the maximum results? What best builds a big congregation? That may succeed as the world measures success, for sure. You can build a big congregation by the same technique you use to build a big corporation or market hamburgers. But that's quite different quite different from doing the work of God. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Trust Christ. Rest in Jesus. Believe on him have faith in him and his finished work. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the clarity of this message that your word gives us, for the sermon that you inspired, uh, you God-breathed Peter to preach on the day of Pentecost that we have before us that we can uh, still uh, read and memorize and hear preached and believe. We thank you for this. I pray, Lord, that each of us uh, as individuals would be refreshed by this message of Christ preached. And as a church, we would be uh, invigorated about the importance of proclaiming this message. And I pray, Lord, that it would have its effect, that we would see the effect of Christ preached in our midst and in our community. And Lord, I think of that even this week as we have opportunity to carry out a vacation Bible school. I pray that you'd bring people to this place that don't know the message of Christ and that through the members of our church, the teachers, the students, the curriculum, that they would have Christ presented to them that they might believe. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.